and uh, to start our time together, are you a rule follower or are you a rule breaker? Now, we're in church, and so the temptation in a crowd like this one is to say, well, of course we're rule followers, right? It's very, very cold outside and we're in church, right? Of course we're rule followers. Allow me to lay out a couple uh, scenarios, right? So imagine that you are driving on the highway and the speed limit is 70 miles an hour. Do you go 70 miles an hour making you a rule keeper or have you figured out a formula that is culturally acceptable for how fast you can go and not get a ticket? And so you set your cruise to 75. Are you sure you're a real follower, right? Imagine uh, that your boss leaves for the day and that he has a doctor's appointment and you know he's not coming back and your office technically closes at five, but you know he's not coming back. What time do you leave? 4.30, 4.45, four o'clock, right? No one's gonna know, what time do you leave? Are you a rule follower or a rule breaker? Your parents leave you home for one of the first times. They've told you not to play any video games at all while they're gone, but there's no way for them to know. There really isn't any way for them to know. What do you, what do, you do? Rule follower or rule breaker, all right? I wanna talk today, today we're gonna to talk about the law a little bit, all right? So in the Old Testament, there are uh, more than 600 total laws listed in the Old Testament. And when we read the Old Testament, we tend to think about them as rules, that we tend to review these laws as rules. And in a way they are, but I will tell you in the Old Testament, they thought of them a whole lot different than rules. Uh, they thought of them as a, a gift from a loving God to help them find life. And their understanding of the law, their understanding, I, I, I'm not gonna use this language for the whole sermon, but the, law, the, the rules, their understanding of that was that this was a gift. This was bringing them to life. And let me put this on the screen for you. Nothing will transform your view of the law like understanding the lawgiver. When you understand that the lawgiver wants best for you, that uh, a couple songs that we sang today were really, really great about how God loves us and, and those sorts of things, um, that, that the lawgiver loves us and wants best for us, he's leading us to life. When you believe that about the law, it transforms and changes the way we view the law. So here's the question. Like I said uh, at the beginning of our service, I think it's possible this is gonna feel more like a class than a sermon, all right? And uh, I've reconciled myself to that and I'm okay with it uh, because I think that what Jesus teaches us this morning is really important. But the question I wanna tackle with you this morning is what is the place uh, of the law, of the Old Testament law in the life of a New Testament Christian? All right. This is something that Christians have actually battled over for years and years, that are we, as Christians in Christ, are we obligated to the law? Are we obligated to the Old Testament? Are we obligated to the Ten Commandments? Do we need to follow those today? Should Christians follow and obey those rules? Is it valuable to have the Ten Commandments posted at different parts of our culture, courthouses and things like that? Are we bound as New Testament Christians to the Old Testament law. And it's really kind of apropos that we're talking about this because and this is kind of a, a pastor Bible nerd thing, but this subject the last uh, two or three years has actually been bantered around a, a lot in, within the church. Right, I'm gonna put a couple of uh, quotes up here, here and before I put them up, I really want you to know that every one of these guys that I'm gonna quote, I have tremendous respect for, but I, I'm putting, uh, we might have some nuanced disagreements on this, but I wanna put these quotes up so, you, so we can kind of lay a bedrock for what we're gonna talk about this morning. All right, this one's, first one's by Andy Stanley, uh, who I listen to every week. Andy Stanley is kind of my preacher. Uh, he's one of the only people that I listen to every week, but he says, 
Um, Participants in the new covenant, that's Christians, are not required to obey any of the commandments found in the first part of the Bibles. Participants in the new covenant are expected to obey the single command Jesus issued as part of his new covenant. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. All right, that's Andy's perspective. Wayne Gruden, Grudem. It is important to realize that the author of Hebrews, and we, we did Hebrews earlier this year, and I'll tell you, once I got into Jesus's text, before I finish this quote, once I got into what Jesus taught, I was like, oh my goodness, did I screw up Hebrews? But I don't think I did, all right? Uh, so, just so you're, you're okay, but I don't think I did. But when I first read Jesus, I was like, oh my goodness, I think I screwed up Hebrews, but we're, we're gonna figure out what all this means, right? It is important to realize that the author of Hebrews is not saying that some Old covenant laws are no longer binding on Christians, such as sacrificial law or purity law, for example. But that the old covenant itself, the entire system of laws that define the relationship with God and his people is no longer in effect. Thomas Schreiner. Paul argues that the entirety of the law, the entirety of the law has been set aside now that Christ has come. To say that the moral elements of the law, we're going to talk about what this means in a minute, but to, to say that the moral elements of the law continue to be authoritative blunts the truth that the entire Mosaic covenant is no longer in force for believers. And Robert Foster argued against all of this stuff, and he said, uh, the old, he was arguing for the law in the life of a Christian. He said, the Old Testament does three things. First of all, it can help Christians understand the implications of the gospel in our lives, Two, the Old Testament can illuminate the Christian's understanding of God's way in the world. And three, the Old Testament can provide a foundation for Christian moral conduct. So this has been kind of debated the last couple years in particular about what is the role of the law? What is the role of the law for people that believe in Jesus, for people that follow Jesus, for those in the new covenant? And I appreciate Andy Stanley and I appreciate uh, Tom Schneider and Wayne Grudem but I would like to see what Jesus says on this. I, don't, I think we're all okay with that, right? So let, let me show you what Jesus says, and then we'll talk about it. He says, all right, I want to show you uh, this text in the entirety, and then we're going to go for, through it verse by verse, all right? So here's uh, Matthew 5, uh, verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, so Jesus is going to teach us the right place for the law in the life of a, of a believer in Jesus. Let's start in verse 17, all right? Good place to start. Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So here's truth number one. Jesus, and this is, you know, why I went to Bible college, right? For, you know, obvious truth like this, but Jesus did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I went to school for four years to draw that out of the text, right? Uh, Jesus did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. This word is really, really interesting, um, abolishing. It it is used uh, to describe a traveler that would come into town on a horse. And uh, at one point, he would kind of let the horse loose 
and the animal would go and feed in the, in the pasture. All right? So you got a guy coming up to a, a house on a horse. He says, I'm going to let my horse graze for a while. He lets loose of the horse, and the horse goes to the pasture. And some were arguing that this is what Jesus has done to the law. All right? Some argue that he is letting loose of the law, he is letting loose of the prophets, and he is focusing on what's going on inside the house. He's going into the house, leaving the horse out in the pasture to focus on something different and better, a completely different thing. That's one argument. It's also used to describe the destruction of a building uh, that may have fallen into disrepair. And this is another thing that Jesus was accused of, that he was destroying and abolishing the law in order to build something else, right? So uh, Cheryl's family, we, we just kind of gone through some of this, that we have a little, uh, for years and years, our whole uh, life, every summer, we go up to a little cottage that her dad has up in Michigan. And uh, this last year, the cabin got flooded, like completely flooded, and uh, trying to figure out what to do and talking to contractors and all that. And long story short, what's been decided is to tear down the cottage and uh, build something brand new. And the question is, is that what Jesus is doing with the law? that he's tearing it down and he's replacing it with someone, something brand new. And here's what Jesus said. I didn't come to do that. No, I didn't come to do that. I didn't come to abolish. I didn't come to let the law loose. I didn't come to let the law loose. I didn't come to tear it down. I came to fulfill it, all right? So fulfillment in this text, fulfillment is the opposite of abolishing. And so this word is also very interesting. It's, um, this is used to describe in the New Testament uh, a net that is absolutely full of fish. It is uh, used to describe a home that has been filled with the fragrance of perfume. So, nothing, so a, a net is never more useful than when it's filled with fish. Prefer, perfume is never more useful than what's giving a pleasant odor. That Jesus came to give meaning and value to the Old Testament law. Now, you heard in the earlier quotes this referenced a couple times, but I think that this is a good time to kind of talk about those 600 laws of the Old Testament, just to take a quick time out and then we'll continue. Then the Old Testament, so a lot of you know that God called Abraham to leave his country and his people, and God said, through you, I'm going to establish a nation. And that for a lot of the Old Testament, God was working through the nation of Israel. Now later, when Jesus comes and the church is established, that message will go to everyone. But for a lot of the Old Testament, God is working through the nation of Israel. So a lot of those 600 and some odd laws in the Old Testament, a lot of them are called civil laws, that they are laws that God gave uniquely to the nation of Israel for how they should operate and how they should uh, uh, live as a nation. And those laws, by and large, don't apply to anybody else but the nation of Israel. They were for uh, Israel at a certain time for how they should govern their nation. Right? Now, also for a good chunk of the Old Testament, uh, there, there was the temple system, that you would go to the temple, you would sacrifice at the temple, the priest would uh, offer forgiveness for your sins, and you'd worship at the, testament, at, at, at the temple. And a lot of those 600 laws are ceremonial laws. They had to do with how the temple operated, how that was to be governed, and those laws outside of a temple system, those laws are by and large not relevant. And then there is what is called the moral law of God. All right? These are laws that go into how God defines what it means to be a human being, right? What, what it means to be a human being created by him. So a good example of moral law 
uh, would be the Ten Commandments, by and large. There's a few laws in there that, that people would argue over, argue over, but let me, show you, let me show you the Ten Commandments real quick, okay? Because this is a good example. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth below or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation and to those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations to those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord your God will uh, not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Jesus gets into this on the Sermon on the Mount, believe it or not. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. All right, skip down to verse 12. Honor your father and mother that it, uh, you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. Jesus gets into that. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus gets into that. You shall not steal. Jesus gets into that. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Jesus gets into that. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male and female servants, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So some of these are debated, all right? For instance, the Sabbath is one of the laws that would be debated about whether or not that's moral law or civil law. But by and large, this is the moral law of God. It gets to the heart of what it means to be a human being. Moral law is the law that Jesus is talking about in this text. And the reason we know that the moral law is the law Jesus is talking about in this text is that starting next week, as the sermon unfolds, the moral law is what Jesus begins to teach about, right? He preaches on murder and anger. He preaches on adultery and lust. He talks about being a person of honesty. He talks about generosity. He talks about morality in the kingdom of God. So Jesus says here, he says, I didn't come to abolish moral law. I didn't come to abolish the moral law. I came to fulfill it. And he's talking about how many things? He's talking about three things, all right? First on the screen. He came to fulfill the law by showing us how to live it. So, Jesus lived the law perfectly. So if you found what I just went through interesting but confusing, you're not alone. I find it confusing too. It's like, now wait a second. How on earth am I supposed to know the difference between civil law, moral law, and ceremonial law? How on earth am I supposed to know the difference? And here's the good news. In Christ, you don't have to. So here's what I would say to you. Follow Jesus, right? Follow Jesus. Follow his example because he obeyed the moral law perfectly. So if you're confused by this, and you're like, I don't know. Like, are we supposed to be doing sacrificial anymore? Follow Jesus. He's your sacrifice. Or if you're like, I don't know if that's a moral law or a civil law or a, I don't know what to, follow Jesus. Jesus will never, ever lead you astray. So he came to fulfill it by showing us how to live it. He came to fulfill it by showing God's original intent for the law. So for, for the next several verses, Jesus is gonna say, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother is subject to judgment. You've heard that it was said, uh, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery within her heart. And he's gonna go through several examples like this of you've heard that it was said this, but I'm telling you, this is God's original intent for the law. God is concerned about your heart, right? So a lot of people would uh, take God's law and say, well, I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't cheated on my wife or cheated on my husband. I must be a pretty good person. And Jesus says, no, you're missing the original intent of God's law. 
God's original intent was that he would be concerned with our hearts. And he fulfilled it lastly, this is so important, by taking the burden of salvation through obedience to the law away. So he came, he obeyed the law perfectly in my place because I couldn't do it. So I no longer have to feel the burden of I have to obey this law perfectly to know and worship God. Jesus removes that. We are forgiven by grace. We are marked by his blood. We are forgiven and set free. And so now the law can find its rightful place. The law can do what it was intended to do. More on that later. Now we do funny things with the law. We do. We always have. Human beings always have. The law is not the problem. What we do with the law is the problem. So some of you have kids and grandkids, right? And you, let's say you establish a rule with your kids or your grandkids. You say, you can't watch any TV, uh, you can't watch any TV until your room is clean. Have you cleaned your room? And these little lawyers, God created them to be little lawyers. These little lawyers will say, it depends on how you define the terms of that question. <laughs> Have I ever cleaned my room? Well, yes, the answer to that is yes. Will I clean my room into the future? The answer to that is yes. Have I cleaned my room today? The answer to that is no, right? But this is what we do with the law, right? We, we word parse. We try to, we, we, we lose focus on what the intention of it really is. And that is that God is most concerned with what's going on in your heart. God is most concerned about what's going on on the inside. So it's not about murder with God. It's, am I, I mean, he doesn't want you to murder, but the real question is, am I angry? It's not just about adultery. It's am I lusting. It's about keeping my promises and my word. It's about walking in generosity. What is going on in my heart? Verse 18. They're not all going to be that. That was my longest point. Just so you, oh my goodness. No, we're, we're okay. All right. For I truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Verse 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is not making this like a salvational issue, right? He's, you're going to be least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So moral, God's moral law made perfect in Jesus, God's moral law still has a place today. Now, this is so important. So if you've zoned out because you find this not interesting at all, I totally get that, all right? But you need to hear this. The place of moral law is not our salvation. Moral law has a place in Jesus's book here, but that place is not our salvation. You following the law to the best of your ability is not going to result in you being saved. And we need to understand this as people, right? We need to understand this as people, that me following the law to the best of my sinful ability is not going to result in me being saved. Because the Bible is clear on this. There is no one righteous, no, not one. Right, so you may handle some areas of the law really well, but I guarantee you there are other areas where you and I are falling short. There, there just are, we are all sinners. And I so wish that our culture would understand this. 
because there is so much moral outrage in our world today, and part of the moral outrage is based on this lie, I'm good and you're bad. It is a lie. No, we are bad. (laughs) We are sinners. We fall short. There is no one righteous. No, not one. So let me put this on the screen for you. We are saved by grace through Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through the work of Jesus Christ. So whatever place the moral law has, it does not replace this. You are not going to be saved by being a good person. You are not because you fall short. You are a sinner. And I'm sorry to say that when it's so cold and we're all depressed, but it's true, right? You are a sinner. I am a sinner. So we are saved by grace through Jesus Christ. He lived the law perfectly. He died in my place for my sins so I could know God in this life and in the next. And when I understand this, this, when I understand this one truth, it allows the law to find its rightful place. And I am convinced that part of the reason in our culture, in in the New Testament culture today, part of the reason we're like, get rid of the law, get rid of the law, don't mention the law, just get rid of it, is because we don't understand this, that we are saved by grace through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when I understand this, it allows the law to find the place that it needs to have. And what is that place? Let me give you uh, three, all right? The law convicts me of sin. And the law should do that. The law is meant to be a red light system that tells me I am getting away from God's perfect plan for my life. It is meant to help me to pay attention to my heart. So when I understand the the heart of the law, the law should help me to say, man, I'm I'm angry. Why, Why am I so angry? What is going on in here? Right? Um, the law, we're going to talk about this in a couple weeks, this kind of habit that we have of, I am telling you in Jesus' name, or I am telling you God told me to do this. This kind of thing that we all have, where it's like, I'm going to use God's name to make my argument to you. And it's like, I need to pause and say, what, why can I let my yes be yes and my no be no? Why do I need to pull God into, Jesus told me this. You know, what, what am I trying to accomplish there? And it, it should convict me of what's going on in my heart. Number two, it helps us recognize Jesus. Um, that Jesus is the word become flesh. So the more we know God's law, the more we learn God's law, we ought to have this reaction when we're studying the moral law of God. That's it. That sounds like Jesus. Like I say, if you find all this confusing, the simple solution is just follow Jesus, right? So whenever somebody says to me, um, do I need to follow the Ten Commandments? Am I bound to the Ten Commandments? My temptation is to say, well, the Ten Commandments have a place. But no, as a Christian, you're not bound for your salvation to the Ten Commandments. You are bound to follow Jesus. Now you tell me, which of the Ten Commandments do you think Jesus would tell you to break? Uh, and that's, that's usually what we get. Um, right, follow Jesus. He makes it really, really simple. All right? Uh, it gives us a sense of shared morality. A people that are all pursuing morality together is a really good thing. And I don't think we ought to um, force our Christian values on our culture. I don't think we ought to legislate Christianity. Anytime that's been tried in history, it usually doesn't go super well. 
So I, I'm not advocating for that, but I just wonder if we had a, a, a better sense of shared morality as a culture, if that would be a good thing, and the law can help us to do that. So we ought to love the moral law of God. The purpose of Christianity is not to dismiss the law. The law is not our pathway to salvation, but the law is still a good thing, and it still does good things in the lives of people. And I think this is why Jesus says what he says next in verse 20. I think this just astounded his early followers when he said this. But he said in verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is teaching us here that it is not wrong to pursue righteousness. One of the things that the Pharisees did is they, they pursued the law, they pursued righteousness. Now where they went wrong, and I want to talk about this for a second, is they, they pursued it for the wrong motivation. Right? Jesus has a whole sermon, and uh, sometimes Jesus' preaching just blew me away, but he did a whole sermon directed at the Pharisees. You know what the name of the sermon was? Woe to you. Woe to you. I have never in my life gotten up and said, all right, everybody, open up your Bibles. The title of today's sermon is, Woe to You. You I've never done, but Jesus does that, right? And and part of what Jesus is talking about in that sermon is, man, you're pursuing righteousness, and that's a good thing, but you're pursuing it for the wrong reason. And so motivation is something that we can strive to get right. So motivation for the law, motivation to live the law, is not so we'll be saved. We've covered that. We're saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pursue his righteousness because we love Jesus and we believe he's leading us to life. That is the motivation. It is a a love for him, a love for his law, a belief that his way is correct, his way is king, and he's leading us to life. And this is why righteousness is tied to the kingdom of heaven in this text. Let me put it on the screen for you. It is a diagnosable symptom of someone's relationship with Jesus. All right? So you are not saved by the law. You are saved through a relationship with Jesus Christ. All right? I'm going to say that at least three more times today. All right? Because it's super important. I don't think the law finds its rightful place until we understand we are saved by grace. But... An attitude toward the law is a diagnosable symptom of a relationship with Jesus. So, a lot of people go to the doctor this time of year, right? Flu bug is going around. Imagine you go to a spiritual doctor, and you go to the spiritual doctor and you say, I am a follower of Jesus, I am in his kingdom. One of the diagnosable elements of that would be the doctor would say to you, Do you love his law? Do you love his law? Do you love his way? Now, the diagnosable symptom is not, notice, do you obey his law perfectly? Because the doctor knows you don't, right? The doctor knows I don't. So the diagnosable symptom is not, uh, do I follow the law perfectly? Nobody's doing that, all right? Just, I, I think we, we, we lose our sight of this, that we think there's somebody out there other than Jesus doing this. Nobody's doing this. We're all sinners. All have fallen short. But the diagnosable symptom is, do you love his law? Do you love his way? Do you trust him in that way? Not do you obey it perfectly. No one does. Do you love it? Do you strive after it? That's what Jesus is teaching in this text. Attitude toward Jesus and his law 
is a diagnosable symptom of a relationship with him. Doesn't save you at all because no one is righteous, no, not one. But it is a symptom of someone following Jesus. So you might be tempted to say, so what is the difference then between the old and new covenants? Is nothing really different? Oh no, there is a lot different because Jesus makes everything different. So let me close with this. One of the things uh, that, the difference that Jesus makes are, are three things. He is our sacrifice. We're gonna celebrate communion here in about five minutes. And this is gonna be a reminder to us. He is our sacrifice. I am not saved by obedience to his law. I am not, I will fall short. I have my entire life. I am not saved by that. I am saved by his grace. He lived the law perfectly, making himself a perfect sacrificial lamb. He went to the cross. He gave himself for my sins and for yours. So Jesus is our sacrifice. And that changes everything. It changes everything. It changes our attitude toward the law. It changes the way we see the law. It changes what the function of the law is, that no longer is the function of the law do this to, to maintain your relationship with God. It's not that at all. That's maintained through Jesus. So it allows the law to find its rightful place. He's our sacrifice. He's our example. John called him the word become flesh. So if you don't know what laws are for you, what laws were for Israel, what laws were for the temple, I, you know, I keep saying it kind of tongue in cheek, but I'm deadly serious. Follow Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Say, all right, Jesus talked about anger. That's obviously a moral law. Jesus believed in that. Jesus talked about lust. That's a moral law. Jesus talked about, you know, don't use me to get your way. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't use my name to get your way. Um, that, that's, that's a moral law. That kind of integrity is a moral law. So Jesus is our example. And something I've not talked about much in this sermon, um, but it's super important and we've talked about it all the time, but he is our power. That when he resurrected from the dead, and he returned to the Father, he gave us his Holy Spirit so that we could live the lives we were created to live. Yes, Jesus is about to lay out several moral laws of God, several ways of living. Next week, he's gonna talk about anger, then lust, and keeping your all the generosity. He's gonna talk about it all. But never once does Jesus say, you're on your own. He gives us his Holy Spirit to empower us to live. So does the Old Testament moral law have a place in the life of a believer? The answer to that question is yes. Yes, the moral law has a place in the life of a believer. That place is not our salvation. But the moral law does a lot of good things. I'm inclined to uh, um, agree with Foster in the first couple of quotes that I put up there, that the moral law does a lot of good things. It should not uh, be dismissed. We, we should not be done away with. It does a lot of good things in the life of a believer. But it is not your salvation. Jesus is your salvation. So when I feel kind of penned in, someone's like, do I have to obey the Ten Commandments? We always want, we do this with the law. Tell me what I have to do. Do I have to obey the Ten Commandments to be saved? No, you don't. You have to listen to and put your, re your faith in Jesus Christ. You tell me which ones he wants you to disobey. And the answer to that is not many, right? If, if any, right? That, that Jesus is leading us to righteousness, and so it is all about a relationship with Jesus, but the moral law helps us to see him more clearly. So I always want to draw that distinction that no, we are not saved by the Ten Commandments. We're, we're, not, we're not saved by the Ten Commandments. We're saved by Jesus. But those are still hugely important and relevant in the life of a believer who wants to pursue 
Jesus and his righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for uh, his word. And um, Lord, I know uh, just from my personal life that law will get really messed up and really screwed up if we don't first understand that we are saved by grace. And it is because we are saved by your grace and not obedience to the law that the law can find its rightful place, which is to convict us of sin and point us to Jesus and show us how you want us to live. The law does so many good things, but we lose sight of it when we don't understand your grace. So help us to understand your grace. Help us to celebrate your grace. Help us to live in your grace so that the law can find its rightful place in our heart and our mind. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice. It's in his name we pray, amen. We're gonna celebrate communion right now. And this is an opportunity for us to recenter on grace, to recenter on that truth. And um, uh, we'll uh, pass out, uh, the, the bread represents Jesus' body, the cup represents his blood. You can just hold on to those. I just want you to spend a few moments just thanking God for his grace, thanking Jesus for his grace. And then I'll come back up, we'll, re we'll receive communion together uh, as a church family. All right.